So first of all, I suppose if you could just tell us a bit about your work, the work yeah. that you do for people who aren't familiar with yeah. that. Well, uh, probably something with storytellers that people are always very keen to know if you come from a storytelling tradition of one kind or another and the wonderful truth about this revival of storytelling that we're experiencing is that it's in its infancy and there are very very few people that come from some unbroken tradition uh, and in actual fact the art form which we all practice uh, has many different heads. The, the poet Hafez says there are many ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And that's what I like about this storytelling thing. There's no particular way to do it. However, I do have a specific interest in it that is not broad. It's, it's quite specific. Uh, and it's really this notion of mythology is the heart of ecology. That actually among the statistics and the seemingly bad news of now is actually tremendous opportunity if you have the eyes to see it and you have the heart to follow it. Uh, so I like the notion, and this comes from an American writer called Sean Kane. He says, myth is the power of a place speaking. So myth is not just allegory. It's not just societal control. Uh, it's not just to keep us in line. It is actually what I think of as a kind of echolocation coming out of the ground designed to rub up against people whose ears are tuned enough to hear it. And so as the question arises of, you know, what stories do we need now? What are the... I don't particularly like the term narrative because it's just got no salt in it. But, uh, you know, what are the narratives of now? What are the stories of now? Uh, I think it's a good question, but I don't think we can co-opt or cut and paste particularly things that will have enough resonance in them to really sweep people up. Myth means no author. Myth, the reason why certain stories land so deeply within us is because they've been passed like water over dark stones through many different communities and many different people's lives who've all dealt with seemingly hopeless causes and so the images have a resonance that not one person alone cannot muster no matter how brilliant and so over the last decade uh, I suppose I've been drawn to those kind of stories stories that seem to talk about a very real living relationship between the complexities of our life wilderness the natural world and these big stories, you know, what some people call fairy tales. Um, my interest as I now come to another decade of living in Devon where I, I grew up as a child is specifically in local stories. Uh, and I'm interested in the local stories of farmers and shepherds and people that have lived here, but also the stories that have been embedded in the place for a long time. And... Um... How do new myths get created then? So when does a when does a story become a myth? Well, don't set your watch any time too soon. But don't get depressed either, because what we can have is mythic stories. Doesn't mean that there's no myth in them, but a myth is something that really comes from a kind of dreaming. Uh, you know, when I think about uh, what I know of transition, and I really like the amount of spirit and clarity uh, in what's happening. 
but the old Aboriginal idea of how are we to live, and when I say Aboriginal, I don't mean Australia, I mean wider than that, is that actually the dreaming of a human being, the logos, the intelligence of a human being, can only go so far. And then there comes a point where you actually need to get dreamt by the land itself. Now that sounds rather esoteric, but actually it's been a common policy in tribal groups all over the world for thousands and thousands of years. And my background is in wilderness rites of passage, so I've been taking folks up to Snowdonia in Wales, uh, where you go out onto the land and for four days and nights you fast. Now what tends to happen is, around the fourth day, you've got through the issues with your mother. You have got past that uh, relationship that went wrong. You've got past the, you've got past your sort of societal and psychological stuff. And around the fourth day, you experience what, again, tribal people tend to call the wild land dreaming. So you get dreamt by the land. And the stories that folks come back with have a very different quality to them than had they tried to think them up in their study in Croydon uh, or Ashburton. So, in other words, I don't think we can suddenly produce a myth. I don't think that the big problem of climate change and or everything attached to it will come from one big answer. But the genius of myth is that it's, it's illuminations, it's truths are polyphonic. They come from lots of different places. And I would suggest that we need to tune our ear to... I mean, it's, a bit, it's an interesting thing. Big questions uh, for me are around, you know, the European tradition of story, which is, is essentially Greek uh, and Gaelic and Celtic, and the kind of images and understanding you'd get from Siberia, for example, or the, uh, the Iroquois. They're bringing stories with them that are are very different and I think have something to say. I'm very interested in the fact that in the last 20 years, as you'll be well aware, the migrational patterns of animals have radically changed. The migrational patterns of stories have also radically changed. So you can go to a pub in Plymouth now and see a guy that's never left the West Country tell you a Seneca Indian story, and that's really remarkable. What does that mean? You go over to Canada and certain animals, certain birds are wintering 200 miles further north than they used to and they're having to deal with what I would call their myth line orientating to a new situation, a new nest, a new season, when do I give birth, all of that. I think the migrational patterns of stories and the migrational patterns of animals are telling us something about the malaise we're in. They're telling us something about what we're in now. This is a very long answer to your question. Uh, but it's those sort of areas that I think are going to give us the kind of stories that have the soul food we need. Uh, yeah. So in terms of the stories that we need now, culturally, mm. for the times... Because mm. the stories that we have culturally now are completely inappropriate. Right? Yeah. The stories mm. um, that we get through the media. And so, mm. so, so what you're suggesting is that rather than thinking, oh, my God, we have to sit down and create our mm. own and write new stories for now it's more that we, mm. we, we need to connect with the wisdom that we have yeah. in the myths it's just a cho choosing yeah. the most appropriate myths yeah, yeah. we've got to f whether you are 
religious or spiritual or story orientated or not, we are, we're all worshipping something. You know, every day we get up and we go to some kind of temple or another. And so my question would be for something like transition, you know, what are the what are the god what temple are you entering every day when you go to work? What stands behind what you do? And for some people that's a temple with a lot of money in it, for others uh it's different it's different again. So A, I would say that the stories we're being fed now are certainly not myths, they're what I would call toxic mimics. They're not myths. But when we are deprived of the real thing, we will take even an echo of that and grab onto it. So in other words, the most horrible lies always have a little bit of truth in them. Just enough. So it's not an easy task. Um, I would suggest more folks spent more time investigating the stories and the people they loved when they were children. I've been thinking about this recently. I don't know how old you are, but I'm at the very beginning of my midlife and I recognize more and more that the kind of man I want to be is the kind of person I loved when I was a very small child the the old you know not that I'm going to be an old woman but uh you know the woman that turns up at the party with lots of chocolate in her pockets and gold coins and he's gambling and the, the old man that starts an outrageous fight with an, with an uncle it's like yes <laughs> yeah that's the kind of thing I like um but I, I would say a place to begin in all of this rambling, a place to begin is as as simple as an apprenticeship to a 20-mile radius of where you live. So in other words, say, I am going to limit my boundaries. I'm going to give this a particular shape, and I'm going to look at, you know, for, we're in a very rich area here, of course. We have, you know, the... Uh, the songs of the Brixham fishermen as they go out in the morning. We've got all of the folklore attached to Dartmoor. You are... To to build, you know, the Aboriginal idea is of a song line going over a land and you go to this tour and this river and you know the story of that place. Well, my challenge is, both to myself and to other people, is to build up a web of your own myth lines about a place and also not to be snobby. So I'm not saying this has to be of the natural environment. You know, William Blake found a lot of this in East London. He would gaze under a bush and he'd find Ezekiel when he was eight. Uh, so this is something that can be, um, you know, found anywhere. I mean, as you know, we don't have a lot of wilderness in England, but we do have a lot of wildness. You know, you only need to go between two derelict buildings and see a little slither of weeds and it's bingo. Don't be sizest. You know, that, that's where you can make your apprenticeship. Because you were talking at the West Country Storytelling Festival about the idea of becoming a cultural custodian yeah. of a fi- five-mile radius. Yeah, 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 that was very specific. Uh, uh, around us, um, and you mentioned Gary Snyder says something would be famous for five miles. Yeah. So how, how would that work in practice? How would somebody start to embody that in their daily life? Do you think? Well, there's actually a, an old Gaelic word. Uh, the old Gaelic word for uh, uh, this kind of cultural custodian, cultural historian, is called a shanakai, and you spell that S-E-A-N-N-A-C-H-A-I. And so they were a particular kind of storyteller, and I think we need a, a revisioning of this particular character, and I'll explain why. Because they were somebody that was so thoroughly drenched in a place they had their personal relationship to it. They knew 
the great dreaming myths of the place, but they also knew about the agricultural patterns, they knew about the hedgerows, they knew about particular flowers, they knew about remedies, and they'd gathered it all together in an extremely unpretentious manner, and they just embodied something, they walked something, um, whether they knew it or not. And I like the idea that rather than getting het up about whether people are storytellers or not, we should work with the notion of the story carrier. The story carrier, again, is a tribal idea that whoever you are, from whatever disposition, you're carrying the walk of your own life, and you may not like it, and you may need to change the story. Uh, but I'm interested in a culture of story carriers, and that means a certain amount of self-esteem. It means that you can't be so caught up in European self-loathing that you think your story's not worth telling. So I like the Snyder thing of famous for five miles means no matter how green you think you are, you still carry an in, what I would call an interior king or queen within you. Now, over the summer, I've been at various events with a lot of anarchists and a lot of anarchist groups and a lot of road protesters, many of whom I admire. But I have to say, look, with the best will in the world, when people, it's only when your interior king or queen has died that you start giving over that kind of power to the kind of idiots we see in government at this point. Uh, in actual fact, you want to reclaim some of your grandeur, reclaim the belief, call certain parts of yourself out of exile. You know, many stories, as I've probably said before, end in a wedding. They end in a wedding for one reason. The storyteller is saying to you, call to the wedding the parts of you that have got edited and cut away as you, as you age. Bring it all back to the feast. So I like that kind of language. I'm a language person. I like, I'm an apprentice wordsmith. Uh, and so one of the things that interests me with uh, the concerns we have at the moment with transition and others, what interests me is handling of language, that it is imaginative, that it is lively, that it has nuance and depth to it. Now that's difficult when you're trying to get across to a lot of people. I am very aware of that. Uh, but I think it can be done. And um, uh, we live surrounded by by stories of the place and the walls and mm. the fields and the trees and the place names and stuff. But we also need to make changes to yes, the place we do, that yeah. we live so that we can actually mm -hmm. go forward from here. Mm. Um, some of which might be sort of seen as being challenging. To, you know, we talked about one of the examples of that at the storytelling festival. I recall. How do we? How do new and old stories sit alongside each other uh, in a in a culture that needs to reinvent itself quite fundamentally? Paradoxically, that's how they do it. Paradoxically, uh, and the god of the storytellers is a character called Hermes. Now, if you are in touch with Hermes, Hermes has something called the third ear in a conversation. So, as soon as things polarize. As soon as it's one way or this way, you've lost Hermes. He's not there. Uh, and so what I feel very strongly about, as soon as I feel that polarisation happening, uh, I'm anxious because the thing that stands underneath, you know, the, the Roman name for Hermes is Mercury. So if you have a mercurial conversation, it means it has energy in it, it's exciting, there's possibilities and ideas. Uh, so... 
every time that happens, God is in the room. Uh, and I'm so there's going to be paradox. I think mythological thinking is not from the past. I think it's already in the future. We're moving, removing towards it through the last hundred years of psychology, actually. Um, so it's going to be ugly at times. There's going to be losses on, on some signs and gains on the other. But uh, I wouldn't want to live in any other time but this. I think it's fantastic. I do. I think it's fantastic. Uh, uh, but we have to be tuned to paradox. We have to be rather like the French word, a bricoleur, the old artist that walks along and says, here's something from here, here's something from here. Hmm, they may not quite fit together, but I'm going to try it in the hope that what I do is so beautiful that the sun rises in the morning and the moon comes out at night. That's what the old gypsies believe. They say, if you know, if your life doesn't carry enough beauty with it, the sun won't come up. Now that is a new definition of self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that very much. That's good for our kids. It's good for our kids, you know, and that's what I feel so strongly. You'll be very familiar with them with the native notion of the next seven generations. What are we doing now? And something I've been aware of uh, with this transition thing is, you know, is this idea of what will be said about us now. Uh, and I like that. That is sufficiently stirring. But what all stories talk about, stories always begin with some sort of seeming calamity and a, and a, a need to gather spirit amongst people. But spirit isn't the same thing as soul. It's slightly different. And what will be interesting over the next decade or so, as this movement grows and others, is to see what happens when the spirit moves from that kind of the fiery speech that gets people working into the deeper, slower, more reflective business of soul. But it is out of that, it is out of the combination of soul and spirit you'll get a true mythos. You'll get something that will just hit people on the deepest level. But your sense is that at all, at all the stages, that, that, that process from its fiery bit through mm. to its deeper bit should be accompanied by a storyteller who's able to input the most appropriate myths at the most appropriate time? I think... Like a sort of a, a doctor giving the right little nudge on occasion? I think, well... What I would recommend, or I, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to place too much sort of uh, importance on the storyteller's shoulders, because I think a lot of the storying will, will really come out of the community, will come out of people. Uh, I dare say that a lot of what is binding this together is this sense of a really great common goal. You know, I go to, you know, I'm in Ashburton, and for the first time in a generation the allotments are, you know, there's a waiting list. That is fantastic. My little daughter is growing up in the consciousness of, you know, we've just today, we've, we've just grown our first ever courgettes. We've got a few past the slugs and we're sitting there chopping up. Okay, this came from our garden. This is it, you know. So, in other words, uh, it's not so much someone coming in didactically and saying this is what it means. But I would suggest that... Uh, people take that task on. There are people designed to be pragmatic and strategic and there are other people designed to dream and to ponder and to walk and to be a bit obscure. Every Arthur needs a Merlin. You know, every movement needs a dreamer, it needs a Merlin, it needs someone getting dreamt. Uh, all traditional cultures combine what you could call the wisdom of the village, 
and the knowledge of the forest. And all rites of passages are about taking what's best of the village, going out into the wild, getting loosened up by nature and bringing back that visionary content to the village. The reason why, in my humble opinion, we're in the state that we are in now is because of an absolute amnesia about this ancient process. Now, what happens is when you deny the wild, you get the feral, you get the savage. So, uh, you know, as I've probably said, I was watching the riots last year and my heart was breaking because I was looking at all these uh, young men and women perfectly tuned for initiation, turning savage instead of wild. You know, it's the mosh pit, not the flamenco dance. Uh, and I'd like to formally invite, you know, 17,000 East Enders to come up with me to Snowdonia next year and go out on the mountain. I think it'd be great. Why not? <laughs> I, 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 Joanna Macy, who talks a lot about this, she says mm. that, that uh, you know, the industrial the agricultural revolution took thousands of years, the industrial revolution took hundreds of years, but what we need to do now needs to take like 10 years, yeah. 15 years, yeah. and that if we do pull it off, it'll be something people will sing stories and yeah. sing, sing, you know, tell stories about and sing songs about. Yeah. Um, so in a sense, it's it's for it's for those who come after. If if we if we manage to get it right over the over that period, it's not for us. It's for the people who come after us to to tell the stories about what we did, rather than for us to tell the stories about it now. Yes, because we're in the experience. All storytelling is a reflection on something. It doesn't happen in the moment. Uh, so our stories need to settle in a hundred miles of dark soil before they flower and any premature flowering will not be convincing to use an old-fashioned word the soul the soul is not convinced by much you really have to do something dramatic for it to pay attention which is why normally it takes a car accident or an illness or a divorce something to rock everything we have around us to set for the soul to go oh something could be happening here uh, now a lot of my work is how do i stay in conversation with the soul without setting fire to my own life how do i do that uh, and i think the challenges that we have right now and the opportunities we have are a perfect opportunity to do that a lot of opportunity is going to arrive in the next 20 years disguised as loss and you mentioned that, uh, about the role of young people. Yeah. Uh, what the work that you do? You've done work in prisons and, mm. and with with young men quite a lot. What's yeah. your sense of what the need is there and the power of how what you can bring to that? You know, how, how have you seen the power of that? We, what, you know, where, where are we going wrong with our yeah. work with young people? Well, that's that's enormous. Um, one of the things uh, you and I were both, I think, uh, that conversation about story and sustainability, and it immediately polarised between this notion of we have young people in Deptford divorced from all feelings of the wild and only ownership of it or story, and this kind of, you know, tree-hugging place we all live in down here where everything's fine. You and I both know that that is a false distinction because you only have to wander out into the back streets of Totnes or Newton Abbott or Torquay to see a mass disassociation. It's not as if the West Country is a cure-all for anything. Uh, but what I've been doing for the last couple of decades uh, is simply taking 
people that are really within a nanosecond normally of, of a jail sentence being pulled back, taken out into a wild place and being beat to present them with something that is infinitely wilder and more unruly than anything they could have been prepared for. That's the thing. I mean, I think a lot of people ask me about the, this weird thing, you know, what is an elder? Uh, and it's an, old, it's an old-fashioned word in Totnes. It's been used a lot, but I, I'm interested in it. I like the notion of an elder is someone that, when faced with an opportunity for self-advancement, doesn't immediately take it, but looks around and says, how does this affect everybody else? I'm a bit slow to that one, but that's what I'm aspiring to, is that, that wider thing. Secondly, uh, I meet a lot of people that say, well, I'm too damaged for that kind of work because I didn't get that. How can I give what I haven't got? Second response is, if you haven't been fed, become bread. You know, there just comes a point where it's not appropriate anymore in the business of being an adult to talk about, you know, what happened when you were three. You've got to become bread. Uh, the lack, and thirdly, and finally, uh, the, the elder, in my opinion and my experience, is somebody that has taken the tangled walk of their life and can see an evident story within it and knows how to tell it. And when they tell it, they tell it without lies. So in other words, it's not self-aggrandizing particularly. It's not, this, it's not what you'd put on your CV, but it carries. How do you take failure and turn it into an elegant expression of beauty? How do you do that? Because all these stories that we really love are filled with complexity and failure they're very rarely a quick ascension if it's a quick ascension it's not a terribly interesting story we're in a really interesting story uh at the at the storytelling festival without ever making it overt the stories that i actually brought were specifically stories that i think are about right now specifically and i would love to tell them within within that context within the context of people asking those questions about now because I think normally I'll tell a story and then we'll spend maybe an evening or a day or two days going into its deeper implications and when you start to look at the deeper implications of these stories one of which is a there's a, a young a serpent wrapped four times around the world that is squeezing the oil out of it I mean my god what more do you want and this is a, this is 2,000 years old it's perfect uh, the business of story is that it is telling us about a malaise of us inside as well as the malaise of what is going on outside. Now, that might be unfashionable and it might sound like hippie jargon, but if this stuff is really going to take fire, there has to be that, the, the inner and the outer. And what I'm looking for, I suppose, is people with a little bit of credibility to present those ideas so you, you trust them. Uh, I think what is going wrong with young folk or what they don't have, they're trying to be initiated by siblings. And that's never, ever happened in any culture before. So in other words, all of their self-esteem, all of their information, everything that they kind of build around them is coming from the horizontal. It's coming from their age group. Never worked like that before. We always, they may have loathed their parents, they may have loathed their uncles and their aunts, but there was a sense of a multi generationed experience of living. And out of that multi generationed experience of living, you saw people die, for example. And when you see people die, it means hopefully you won't walk backwards into your own death. 
So you learn to die a little bit every day. And I don't mean that in a dramatic way, but I think that's part of what it is. But now, with the, the amplification of the teenager, which is we know is a fairly recent inv invention, uh, they are more disassociated and more disappointed than ever. And in the old Celtic tradition, they said, if you're going to do anything interesting in your life, you need to be wrapped in what they call the swan feather cloak of story, and you need to have a real relationship to the land around you. And if you don't have those two things, it is as if there is um, a, your skin is too sensitive to deal with the inevitable disappointments that will come towards you. You need some kind of cloak. You need some kind of protection. And story and connection to the outside world has provided that. And because we don't have that, I think this malaise is going on not just with young people, but all over the shop. Well, I remember one of the things that really struck with me, and I, and I don't know if it was you, mm. you said it, or if it was Matt, mm. but about uh, young men uh, who kind of where they're from have sort of mm. bossed the place on their own in the woods mm. for the night, that actually not many of them don't uh, find it far scarier than anything else. You have no idea. Yeah, I, I did say that. Yeah, I've seen it again and again. I, I have physically... I have physically broken into crack dens and grabbed kids who've agreed to do this, stuck them over my shoulder, fought my way out, thrown them in the car and driven to Wales. I've, and I have witnesses, you know. We, we get... Because they want to do it, and when it gets near to the knuckle, they don't. Or they're, they're, and I've seen guys like that who are, you know, love, hate on the knuckles, whimper as the indigo black settles around them. And you say, for the next four days... You know, you are miles and miles and miles away from anybody. At night, you don't have a, a you don't have a fire. You don't even have a tent. You just have a bit of tarp, so you're utterly open. But in that darkness, occasionally there will be the movement of a deer or a fox or a badger, and that is it's edgy. And the reason why initiation has traditionally been so successful is it takes, frankly, young people that think they know everything into a position where they go, I think I know quite a little. And they pay far more attention to older folk that have been through that experience when they get back. And they get praise, they get blessing. You know, um, we don't, we're not a praise culture anymore. We're a kind of sugary, horrible, affirming, ghastly thing. But r up until 100 years ago in Russia, for example, the toast you would get at a meal where someone says... I am toasting you because I saw you do this thing and at this time. Uh, it's a quote I use a lot, but I have a friend from the Deep South who says, you know, if you, if you know a young woman or man and you care for them and they take you seriously, if you haven't praised them in the last two weeks, then you are hurting them. You're hurting them. And so I, you know, that's enough for me. I can just take that one statement and do that for 10 years and that's enough. Yeah. And I think those things are utterly connected to transition and connected to the wider ecological questions in that. Absolutely. So, yeah, like a, a transition initiative should praise everything around it on a regular basis. Yeah. There was some research a while ago about the couples that stayed together. There was a ratio of, of if you said one 
If you said six nice things to every unpleasant thing you said to your partner, your relationship with some huge person, <laughs> just stay together than if it was the other way around. I'm going to take that, Rob. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, someone said once to me, said, how important is it for you to be right you know, in, in, a, in a domestic with someone you really love? How important is it? You know, choose your battles. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'll lead from that. <laughs> and I suppose lastly, if you had any last thoughts about, about the role of stories, like, you know, with, with Transition, there's people in thousands of communities now around the world who are, who, who are trying to sort of gently nudge the place they live through, through creating stories, I suppose, in terms of the projects that are mm. happening and... Uh, and then sharing those stories and certainly at Transition Network I think a lot of my job is really about telling the stories of what they're doing in Brixton and what they're doing in Dunbar in Scotland mm. what they're doing in Totnes mm. the story that's unfolding here mm. in Totnes is absolutely mm. fascinating mm. and actually resonates mm. around the world which is why so many mm. people come to see it uh, so that sort of story and documenting mm. story and communicating story is a really big part mm. of what Transition Groups do but what would mm. be your final kind of thoughts or advice for them on how to do that I'm very bad at answering direct questions because the way I was taught, I was, I was taught really through through uh, tribal people who do answer questions, but it's very circuitous. Um, when the Normans invaded Britain, <laughs> when the Normans invaded Britain, and they really, really torched this country. Uh, and you know this isn't building up to a rant about the French or anything like that. Like building, it's, yeah, it's, it's just a word I want to bring out. When they did this, what happened was nobles in you know rich feudal families disappeared into the woods. They fled, and not only did they flee, uh, a lot of the folks that had worked for them and actually had a very warm relationships, what we call peasants, also fled into the forest. They just disappeared overnight. A generation of Britons fled to the forest. Now, the Normans gave them a name. They called them the Silvatikai, and it means the people of the forest. Now, during that period of devastation, they came, Britain came under what they called the Norman yoke. And they said, we are never, ever going to get rid of these people. They are too emphatic in their destruction. But what happens is... Over about 150 years of this strange forest thing going on where dignitaries are befriending and forming families with local people back and forth, you get what we now call the Greenwood spirit. Because actually out of that come the Robin Hood ballads and Herod the Wake and this, in, this, this very affirming culture of resistance that grew up in Old Albion. It grew up in Britain. And... Um, I get a huge goose pump sort of excitement when I hear about the Silvatikai. And so what I would offer to transition is a kind of Silvatikai program where people, someone, a storyteller, travelled from community to community and heard and witnessed the stories. In fact, maybe just wrote them down in some enormous leather-bound book. In King Arthur's time, you couldn't have a feast without an adventure occurring. You could not eat until something had kicked off. Bring that back. <laughs> then people will start, you know, the whole thing gets this swagger. I'm really interested in words like panache and swagger at the moment because that's something that traditionally, us on the left, we lack a bit. Mm -hmm. So if we brought that back, um, 
So I would say a, an appreciation of the local, a recognition that it has this mythic undercurrent to it, uh, a collecting of those stories. I'm sure you're already engaged in books and things like that about it. But I think, um, yeah, I don't know if I've got anything more coherent than that, but I like this notion that underneath Britain, underneath the concrete, and underneath the towns, there is this old, ancient, dreaming spirit that is just waiting for people to live in the right way. And when you do it, you have uh, a kind of genius underneath you that you as a person don't just possess. It's something greater than that. Some, some divine wind comes. So all I know is that if this happens and folks live with this, not only will they feel nourished... Not only will their experience of living being stronger, uh, there's something coming from the ground itself. As I said, I know that sounds very esoteric, but I stand by it.